And welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast hosted by a couple of your favorite people from Philadelphia who talk about movies, things that they love, things that they hate, and everything in between. So we are wrapping up Roommate Revenge, starring all of us, of course, but then also uh, my roommates, Heather and Kara. (laughs) Before we get into the pick they had for me... How's everybody doing? How have your past, I don't know when the last time we recorded, sorry, everybody. Uh, how have your couple weeks been? And have you seen anything pretty cool? The Phillies lost and I have a head cold. <laughs> so, um, yeah, a couple, I guess when this comes out, like a couple weeks ago, the Phillies lost the World Series. Pretty disappointing. Got a head cold too. Yeah. I'm learning to believe kind of in like uh, sports superstition because I've never watched a world series until this one and maybe i shouldn't have maybe that was the problem i don't know um everyone that is in my home was relieved that the phillies lost because the uh every time that they've won a recession has followed so <laughs> there was like a little bit of a sigh of relief <laughs> um i guess my baseball update is that i was secretly rooting for the astros only because my dad was from Houston. He's like, that's like his team. And I wasn't around Philly people, so I wasn't rooting for the Phillies, but I was talking to him about it. Anyhow, that's my two cents. My two cents about baseball is um, all of this is secondhand. Apologies. But I heard that Ted Cruz was celebrating the Astros win and then got hit with something. What did he get hit with? I, I don't know. I've not heard, I've not heard this, uh, this political goss. No, but uh, I love the story so far. Damn. Yes. Um, okay. Come back. We'll we'll come back to this. We'll we'll come back around. <laughs> Continue on, friends. Well, I've been doing okay. I saw um an interesting movie uh on Netflix. It just came out. It's the uh German adaptation of All Quiet on the Western Front, which is uh, pretty apropos as far as what we'll be diving into today. Uh World War One movie that is from the German perspective and is uh really uh a downer very uh very stern very uh unflinching and really uh pretty dark but uh pretty spectacularly directed some really strong performances and uh as i understand it a bit uh of a loose adaptation of the original text i think it takes some liberties uh as far as structure and plot but uh i found that those two uh, like two and a half hours flew by really fast um, and I'm not much of a war movie guy, uh, for the most part. So I have to say that this is a rare exception. That was one of my favorite summer reading books, uh, in high school. I think it was freshman year going into sophomore year. Uh, I'm reading all quiet on the Western front. So I've been um, looking forward to seeing that if it's not already on streaming or when it does. It's on Netflix right now. Check it out. Oh, wow. Uh, <clears throat> I saw in theaters, uh, I went to go see Char. And, uh, that was a wild ride, you know, some Cape, great Cape Blanchett acting suits, uh, interesting sound design. Uh, yeah. And I think one of the best endings I've seen in a movie or like in, in recent memory, that ending rules. I was a little like, I think for the first 15, 20 minutes, I was kind of like, 
ooh, am I going to like this movie? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, same. I was like, ooh, am I in over my head here? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then I, it just built momentum in such an interesting way. And, uh, by the end, I think just, I keep coming back to the ending. Just so good. That's all I'll say. Yeah. One of the finer notes of the year so far for me. Uh, I haven't been watching anything. I was dog sitting for the past like week and a half or so and uh, did nothing but watch that dog. But two announcements I have to share. One, uh, Chris Evans is sexiest man alive. Uh, I already knew this. Glad everybody else caught up. Thank you finally for acknowledging what I've already known. Um, I, was gonna say, to, I like that that was a correction because, yeah, uh, <laughs> otherwise it would just be uh, business as usual. But yes, officially sexiest man of the in the world. Uh, I think that the tag under it was the universe has spoken. And I was like, yes, it it has. But it, it's been speaking this whole time. Anyway, also uh, upon this recording, November 10th, it is Taron Edgerton's birthday. Happy birthday. He's not listening, but we I personally love you. So great. Hello, happy birthday. The Rocket Man. The Rocket Man, indeed. Cool. I honestly, oh, I do have one last thing. Uh, it was a beer can. Ted Cruz was hit with a beer can. Ah, uh, there you go. Um, okay, so that's <laughs> what we've been watching. That's what we're up to. Uh, I have clearly, wow, what a, I, I have uh, started a train wreck here, I gotta say. Anyway. <laughs> uh okay so we are wrapping up roommate revenge and the the pick that heather and kara had for me was 1917 here is why they picked it and what they have to say about my movie taste so we are wrapping up our roommate's revenge theme (laughs) and we're ending it with me which is perfect because these are my roommates Heather and Kara and I am super excited to hear what you think about my movie choices um because I have forced you to watch all of these yes Um, (laughs) and when I say forced I mean like if you said no, I'd be really sad and I'd like guilt trip you all. So, or also like, can we watch a movie? Turns it on. Yeah. <laughs> I have a specific movie in mind and we're going to watch it. <laughs> How many times have I played you guys the uh, back cracking scene in Dark Knight Rising? Oh my God. <laughs> it is just in my brain playing at all times because yeah. I've seen it so many times now. Anyway, all right. So, Kara, <laughs> you're up first. All right. So, Sam, it's kind of hard to describe your taste because I share most of your taste (laughs) and I like to think of myself as having good taste. (laughs) um, It's a little tricky, but you do have more than a hint of nostalgia in your picks, which I appreciate. Um, I know that Sam, when you were talking about the Pacific Rim episode that you said that you and I would be drift compatible Mm -hmm. and I think that still holds true especially in movie choices even the ones you've lovingly forced me to watch (laughs) I've I've been mostly on board Mm -hmm. mostly on board (laughs) um some picks that I did not love uh and I know I know what you're gonna say but I have to say it 
maximum overdrive. I just, there were too many questions. There were too many things that I needed to know that the movie never answered. But I will tell you that that um, golf cart with a machine gun uh, really sticks out to me. <laughs> she also had a favorite truck. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little one. <laughs> um, and then very controversial, Legends of the Fall. I just, that ending threw me for a loop. Wait, and did I, you hate Legends of the Fall? Yeah. Hate? <laughs> <laughs> right, Hate's a strong word. <laughs> Hate is not where I'm at. I Watching Sam hear this live is... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it was infuriating, that ending. When all of a sudden everybody has a shotgun? <laughs> and then the bear comes back. <laughs> and you're like, why? Right. Right. Scream bear attack. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> there were so many places that I thought it was going to end, and then it just kept going. Yeah. <laughs> However, like I said, most of your choices, I am completely on board. And and one in particular, you just hurt me. I'm so sorry. Deep. <laughs> So pick a good one. Oh, um, all right. Well, I gotta go into your list. Oh, for fuck's sake! (laughs) Well, well, while you do that, Heather, why don't you? Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. So, Sam, I have, I think, what I've known you for ten years, lived with you for nine. Yeah. So I say I have a a pretty good grasp on (laughs) yeah on your movie choices, (laughs) and I like most of them. Also, um, you you do peer pressure though but we know that bullying (laughs) is your way of love so um and i would say looking back at the movies you picked 75 percent of them probably are like classics they're older they're very formative to who you are as a person Mm -hmm. if anyone knows you personally um it's like oh yeah i can see why she likes that one Mm -hmm. so for me the least favorite is also it's I also can't see it on your paper. I can't get over this. No, 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 no. Hear me out though. It's because I had to pick one. I actually enjoyed most of yours. Oh, I thought it was because you had to there were, yeah, there were too many. To pick. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, it's only maximum overdrive because it was that's fucked up. It was a little too <laughs> hokey for me, even though it was the 80s and like hokey's the way to go. I just it was. But I didn't mind it. I had a good time watching it. You know I did. But I had to pick one. Yeah. The sprinkler scene alone with the boy riding on the bike. And then the lawnmower. Please. This is a classic. (laughs) Yeah. I just. But like I just can't get my head around like them having sex while the world's falling apart. True. I mean there is that. We we talked about that. Anyway. So my my favorite. I did like a lot of them. But my favorite because it's kind of more up my alley was Testament of Youth. Yeah. Fuck you Connor. I'm just like. Um, just because i thought it was cinematically beautiful the music was beautiful it was a story i'd never heard before plus it was like beautiful people in the cast it was i just yeah it it warmed my cold heart so kara what was your did you figure out your favorite oh i have a lot that's why i didn't write any down because i was like literally most of these i'm chill with um i will say that you've chosen some of my favorite movies like little women practical magic big fish uh pacific rim is you know one of my faves but the one that i think sticks out to me the most and one that i hadn't seen until you introduced me to it logan lucky yes yes um that was a fantastic movie and i wasn't expecting it 
And I, you know, <laughs> it it was a pleasant surprise. And I then recommended it to my father, who does not have any fun at all. No. He does not like fun. And he loved this movie. So, you know, good things. Yeah, if you can if you convince Mr. Murray. Yeah. Must be a good one. Yeah. It was a good choice. That was responsible for our heist month theme. That movie is solely responsible. <laughs> also, Adam Driver. You sucked my arm off. Never forget. <laughs> True. Um, so I guess maybe I was most I was more responsible for the roommate revenge, which isn't, I feel like, for you very much revenge on my part. So we're gonna have you watch 1917. Um, I got off so easy, like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, Uh, because it for me fits in kind of the vein of the testament of youth and like just this beautiful cinematic thing. And I think you did mention on an award show because Mm -hmm. it was you've mentioned this movie and it's just this this that it's like made to look like it was shot in two parts. It's just stunning to to watch. So we're gonna have you do that one. Yay! I'm happy. I love war movies. Yeah. <laughs> good. good. Good, good, good. Yeah. You and probably did get off the easiest, I though. definitely But did. here's the thing. We have access to you at all times, essentially, mm-hmm. so we can make you watch yeah. whatever we want to. We just have to bully you. Yeah, and you have. When you made me watch, uh, what was it? The, the Road, Road to El Dorado. And I was like, fine. <laughs> Excuse me. That's a fantastic film, and no one can convince me otherwise. <laughs> so you didn't even, you were going to put it on Practical Magic, and then you were like, no. <laughs> the Road to El Dorado. And I was like, but then we put on practical magic afterwards anyway uh now you also get a peek into what it's like to live with me and uh these two lovely lovely people thank you for participating um i'm so glad we did this and now listeners when you hear me talk about my roommates and say oh yeah they said this or they hated that now you know who they are Hi. Yeah, thank you guys so much for being such sports about letting us pick movies and also letting us kind of roast yeah. roast you guys for a little bit. I was going to say, we kind we of want to be gentle. Hard. Yeah, Christine Trooper. You're yeah, a real trooper. <laughs> oh, try, I, I feel like, Sam, you've warmed me up to get the full... <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. The full ire uh, over Kelly Reichardt's creations. Yay, this was so fun. Thanks to you Yay. so much. Yeah, this is great. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you. We're very excited to hear what you guys have to say about the picks. Yeah. yeah. To see if we were right in our... Well, you already know how I feel about me. Yeah, I know I'm right about you. Uh, <laughs> in our assessment, it'll be interesting. Yeah. All right. So that's what they thought. Thank you again, Heather, Kara, for participating in this really wonderful theme. It's been one of my favorites that we've done so far. Uh, Full transparency. (laughs) They suggested other movies for me that I vetoed. Uh, (laughs) Love them dearly. They can probably hear me (laughs) right now as we're recording. Here's why I vetoed some of those choices. They were movies they liked that they wanted me to watch that weren't movies that said a lot about me. So Bridget Jones's Diary, for instance, came up a little bit, but that didn't really quite fit in with the movies that I pick, the movies that I have forced on other people. (laughs) But then after we uh, made that decision, or they made that decision, they were like, oh, we should have picked something with Ryan Reynolds for you. So, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda, but anyway... They picked 1917 for me, and boy, am I relieved because it is one that I truly enjoyed. So going around the horn here, 
We've all seen 1917 before this moment. Mm-hmm. Or was this? I had never seen 1917. This is my first I, time. I'd seen it in theaters. Cool. Okay. So, Christine, your first time. Dave, Connor, you had both seen it before. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, Christine, what did you think of it for watching it the first time? Yeah, I remember when it came out, right? It was, we were talking about before recording, right before the pandemic. And I think it was a really kind of buzzy movie. And I, I guess I kind of let reviews get the better of me. I was reading about it. And I think a lot of the things that I was reading, it was like, a lot of it feels just like a first person shooter and like video game and it's style over substance. And then I just sort of like never saw it. I, and I was like, wait, I should really return to this movie. And I just, it kind of fell to the wayside. And then lo and behold, we pick it for the podcast and I watched it and I really enjoyed it. I really thought that, uh, I mean, also it was shot by Roger Deakins. So like he can make just everything beautiful, but I also, I thought the movie did care about its characters. Um, and I thought the first 20 minutes were some of the most riveting movie watching experiences that I've uh, like had, uh, recently. And, I think towards some of the middle parts, it was, it was feeling a little bit uh, like maybe a little too slick or stylish and sort of moving away from sort of the harrowing experiences of war. But for the most part, I'll say, I'll sum it up and say, I really enjoyed it. Cool. Thank you. And then uh, Dave Connor seeing it again, what was your experience the first time? And then did it change seeing it again? Seeing it the first time in theaters, pretty spectacular. I was I was pretty taken away with it. I saw it within the first couple of weeks that it was released. If I recall, uh, my wife Alyssa came with me, I think, because it was my birthday. So that was one of my birthday gifts. She would come see this movie with me, um, if I recall correctly. Uh, and so when it came out late 2019, early 2020, I was pretty impressed with it. I thought the you know was in line with the reviews that I was reading. Uh, pretty blown away and watching it now at home two years later still a big fan still incredibly impressive in many ways but i think watching it on my tv just wasn't the same as the surround sound giant screen um experience of the movie theater so i was really excited to revisit it and still really excited to rewatch it and when it wrapped up i was really excited for this episode to talk about it and to dive deep because i think there's a lot of really awesome parts of the movie to talk about um, and curious to hear kind of other people's thoughts on if anybody else has any kind of thoughts to add to watching it in the theater versus uh, watching it at home. But overall, um, you know, really, really liked watching it a second time. It's interesting. I saw it in theaters uh, at the time, I believe around the time of its national release and uh, was really taken in by it. But I do, I did remember thinking watching it the first time that midway through the movie, recognizing in seeing it in such a big screen, such a loud sound, seeing it for the first time for the spectacle that it is, I do remember thinking, I'm probably not going to enjoy this movie as much the second time or in future viewings. And unfortunately, I was right. I do think that this movie is really admirable in, its, in how technical and meticulous it is. But I suppose uh, it's welcome back to Dave's contrarian corner. Where, in a sense, I, I I do think the critical consensus that it is a bit, a bit uh, style over substance or spectacle over story uh, is to its detriment. 
And I'm not entirely sure what it has to say about the war that is depicting, or for that matter, really even its own characters. So a mixed bag. I think I, I admire this movie, but it's not quite for me, maybe. No, Dave, I think that's such a great point because something that has come up quite a bit when we've done war movies or we've done biopics is disappointment with the content. And I think coming back to the question of what was this movie's actual purpose? Is it trying to tackle the the larger war a bigger story is it trying to be super character driven or is it actually just trying to show you a very specific moment in time or is it trying to do something and it just fails just doesn't do it and i think uh, my very first pick testament of youth I, I i liked it because it showed perspective that we hadn't often heard when it comes to to war movies but there was seemingly a little bit left um, to be desired. Like we want more from it. We want more. So I, I think that that's a great point. And I also think that it's important that we have that conversation because, you know, the reality of life is that uh, it's not perfect. It's not great. And if we don't get what we want, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> it makes sense sometimes. So, um, you know, I'm looking forward to to that coming up more in this conversation because, I, I didn't feel that way either time I watched it. And both times I watched it was actually like on my uh, TV screen. The first time my roommates and I were sitting down here, uh, one roommate, her name is Missy. She she wasn't um, part of the, the roommate revenge, but <laughs> she has participated. She has watched RoboCop and, and a few others. Um, she was knitting a baby Yoda for her partner. And she's also one that doesn't like war movies, but she even got caught up in it. So these perspectives are important no matter what way you swing it how you feel about it so for those who haven't seen 1917 before let me give you a little synopsis a little overview i stole this from wikipedia word for word uh partially inspired by stories told by sam mendez's paternal grandfather alfred about his service during world war one the film takes place after the german retreat to the hindenburg line during operation albrich and follows two british soldiers soldiers uh will Schofield and tom blake in their mission to deliver an important message to call off a doomed offensive attack truly it is two hours and that is it <laughs> that is the point of the movie um so some things that i thought were the standouts of this movie is the atmosphere and the tension building the the idea of war movies as a genre in general and then why period pieces are something that are kind of controversial even today like when it comes to to race and historical accuracies or inaccuracies so um that's what i thought we could talk a little bit about tonight what kara and heather had intended for me to talk about no idea uh hopefully they'll be proud so um the the first thing really is okay so this movie is essentially it it, it tries to show that it is two continuous shots and um, something that I would be interested hearing from, from you folks is when did you notice that it was two continuous shots and did it ever feel like it was annoying or it was too much? I think while it can be used as a pejorative, I think in this case, the word gimmick 
uh, does not really feel that negative. You know, for me, when describing 1917 as like this, the one shot, you know, that's what was all part of the marketing. It's uh, really, I think, the reason, you know, why the movie kind of exists. At least um, that's like the main uh, stylization choice that's presented. And I think it works most of the time. Uh, Dave and I, a couple, maybe like a week or two ago, went on a deep dive of like how many movies actually are like you know, reported to be one shot. And there are not that many of them. And I haven't heard of almost any of them. So definitely a cool choice. And when it works, I think it works really well. And then I don't like by having it be all in one shot, you really just have what a couple of hours max. Um, you know, one tap out a little more than halfway through the movie, the main character's knocked out. Would a bold choice if it's just a black screen for like three hours that you just have to sit there um, in real time. But uh, so I think when it works, it works well. But then there's like a significant kind of chunk of runtime where I think it's kind of distracting. And what is it buying you in those moments? Yeah, I guess that's kind of where my mind's at. Those scattered thoughts about the use of the gimmick when not necessarily a bad thing, but. Uh, it is a gimmick, but I think it's when it's effective, it's effective. I thought that I would be really distracted by constantly trying to see where cuts or where cuts are like patched together to create the continuity of the one shot. Cause obviously there's so like there are moments of the fade to black or when they're passing through a passageway and it's like, okay, this was clearly a new take, but is stitched together to continue that one shot. So I, I thought while watching it, I would be constantly obsessing over this and then it would completely distract me. But I will say uh, that once again, for the first 20, 30 minutes, however, whatever this, the opening trench scene, I immediately fell into it. I wasn't thinking about the one shot at all. What really felt was fluid momentum as we're following these two characters we're given an assignment and then basically physically trying to move the story forward by making their way through this narrow trench and then encountering characters who just come in and then leave uh, throughout. And I was like, that is such a beautifully fluid way to open this story while also, as you mentioned, Sam, building an intense amount of tension. Uh, and I thought from the moment the movie opens to the moment the two uh, characters climb up over the trench walls and then it reveals just like the burned out landscape. I was like, holy shit, this is, this was such a wild movement through this story and the, the terrors and anticipation of like soldiers waiting around to basically start fighting or be gassed and bombed at. And like Connor, I would say that about half or there were other moments in the movie where I was like, ooh, not really digging the attempts to keep pushing this, you know, one-shot concept. There could have been some nice breathing moments. Um, and it, it, it took it definitely took me out uh, of the story. But I will say for that opening, I was like right with the movie. Yeah, for me, it comes down to a question of function. And it is, I think, in that sense, Connor... Um, I, I guess I would probably use it as a pejorative, the gimmick, uh, because it does feel like it was built around that being the idea with little consideration to some other things uh, that come at the expense of that. I get what they're going for. And I, I see Deacon's, you know, masterfully crafting and mapping 
this camera throughout this this continuous space and this continuous experience. And I know that they like built miniatures of each of the individual sets uh, before they started shooting so they could map out camera movement and how to like practically uh, to pull this off. Uh, and I, I see the aim as it being an invitation to experience this as immersive, like uh, like really set you with these characters in this experience. My problem with that, though, is that when it becomes one uninterrupted continuous shot, it conveying an entire experience, it doesn't allow for punctuation that is necessary to draw focus. I think, you know, the way that most films are edited, it, it's, it kind of speaks volumes about the necessity of the function of cutting and editing that, you know, it's kind of the way our brains work. Like, you know, we, we have thousands of thoughts a day and are kind of rapidly changing gears. We see things uh, with different focus and attention, depending on our the direction of our eyes. And when it becomes one continuous camera movement, instead of being immersive, I feel distanced by the artifice of it. It doesn't feel experiential. It feels like observing rather than being there. And it makes me keenly aware that I'm watching a movie rather than having an experience or being transported into a story or a place. And I found that to be pretty impenetrable um, on the second viewing, even the first time watching it uh, after, yeah, after the trench scene, which, you know, kind of, I thought initially was like, oh, this is going to be like kind of a callback to Kubrick's Paths of Glory, where it's like a continuous shot through the trenches to illustrate the labyrinthine nature of that. Uh, and all that goes into it. But when it continues past that, beyond a certain point, the camera movement becomes uh, too consistent or like tedious in its dedication to that vision in a way that doesn't really heighten or or enhance any particular focus or moment to the point that when the camera finally stops moving in some pivotal moments, when uh, Blake is dying in uh, uh, Schofield's arms or when uh when he meets uh this this woman in this the bombed out french village and it actually gives us a moment of rest where the camera just rests and we get a frame with action going on in it without this pretty homogenized movement that it's more powerful so i think it it compromises a little bit uh by being so firmly dedicated to that style and that vision i think the attempts to create variation happen when the camera moves from being behind the character or characters as they're walking to then the like sweep around and then you get the like front angle and you're watching the uh, speakers. And so it's like that was attempts at variation, but I totally agree, Dave, that there's some moments where the camera has no business <laughs> doing what it's like doing just for the service of maintaining uh, maintaining the single shot. But I'll say, I really, and I still am going back to this opening sequence, which I think was just my favorite part. Uh, and I thought there was so much there because I agree that it's like this immersive or this attempted immersiveness, but I also felt like there was um, some sort of stage play elements that I kind of liked too. Like when um, the sexy priest, what's that actor's name? Moriarty. Andrew Scott. And yes, Andrew Scott. When his character uh, gets introduced, it felt very much like I was watching a play and the dialogue felt a little bit theatrical. The well, I've got to, some of that dialogue, the rest of the movie is a little rough, uh -huh. but like I thought that the, the, the continuation of these scenes felt very much, yes, I was observing, but it felt 
both intimate and theatrical at the same time of like watching a play, which I, I think I really also enjoyed. And I was like, I don't know if I've ever kind of seen this, I don't know, odd kind of balance in a movie, but yeah, anyhow, that's a, that opening sequence. Mm, and the end sequence good. when, you know, it, it feels like it earns a long tracking shot. Uh, I think it just, yeah, it, it kind of robs those moments of their power a little bit when I guess that middle portion, when it just becomes an established stylistic tedium almost, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, listening to you all talk about this, I have to say, I'm pretty relieved that I'm fucking dumb and that I just accept the way that things are given to me. Chris, first of all, I had like never even like known that this was um, being talked about as being like one or two, three continuous shots. I had no idea to expect that. So when we started the movie, I think it took me like 10 minutes to realize. So when I say that I'm fucking dumb, uh, know that I am. And I was like, is this, has, have we had any breaks? Have, has the camera like moved to somebody else? And we were like, no, 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 it hasn't. Um, and I, like, I don't think that it ever really became tedious for me. And I think something that I really struggle with in movies is I get distracted and bored almost immediately. Um, the minute something like just becomes boring, just like a little bit, or I'm just loses my focus a little bit. It takes me like a good 10 to 15 minutes to get back into it. Like, fortunately, like that just doesn't happen in this movie because I, you, you're just like not really given the time and space to like sit with things more than a couple seconds. Um, so that's like kind of a, a relief for me. And I think that anytime like a film is making me feel like really anxious and tense, which like the the continuous shot in in Christine, what you've been talking about, like the the opening sequence and the the music really do for me. And, and it, it does that for the entire film, um, particularly when we get to Kust to to the the night scene part where uh, Schofield is confronting a sniper and uh, ends up getting hurt by the sniper and we have like one of the the actual breaks and then we have like the whole night scene there i think like that maybe my attention was like going a little bit and was brought right back because it was like this is like absolutely gorgeous the 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 scenery like having this burnt out torn down destroyed town and and all of the fire going at once um so i guess Perhaps this movie is made to to share these stories, um, to try this gimmick, and it works for people who are just like, I'm just looking at a movie, y'all. I'm not trying to do any kind of like deep dive or, or theory of it because when you do, maybe it falls apart a little bit. So I don't know. Living in my like tiny little corner can sometimes be kind of nice. I think. <laughs> I mean, I would add that, yeah, Sam, I mean, you're totally right. It is, it is, uh, it does have an admirable fluidity that I, th I, I think, yeah, maybe, and it, it, this really is just a matter of taste, I think, for me. It's, it's just, for me, it became a bit tedious because of the way the camera was moving. But the entire time, I was kind of awestruck by their ability to technically craft it. So I, I, find, I find it disengaging for me while still being admirable and impressive. And I do think to the point of, you know, or 
In a response to one shots taking away from the ability for a storyteller to like move attention, you know, move the focus. I, there are moments where I think that within the one shot, there's some great attention to little details. Like when they've climbed up over the trench and they're just surrounded by mud Schofield, he's already cut his hand on barbed wire. And then you could clearly see this is a, they're so they're only like 10 minutes into their journey and already he's fucking bleeding. And then he's climbing through the mud and then the cameras kind of sweeps around him. And he looks over at a dead body all entangled in the barbed wire. And then the camera focuses to, like focuses on the barbed wire. So it's like some nice little moments of like, uh, like zooms or, or pauses that kind of add some details, I guess, uh, that, that slow down the pace and take the eye different places. So I don't, I wouldn't say it's, Totally all forward, forward momentum. Would also but say I, that, yeah, with that injured hand and then going right into the gut of a dead so- German soldier, that hand's coming off by the time he gets back to, to camp yeah. there. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Uh, later on, I found, I, I, I was reading through the Google reviews and there are some gem Google reviews. So I will <laughs> regale the group later with oh, some. Nice of the best of Google reviews pointing out oh, like yes. those little moments. I saw a few of those reviews. Yeah, they're pretty funny. But you know what? That might actually bring up like a good moment of where you might want to sit with something for a little bit longer and to consider the 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 significance of what just happened. This dude had an open wound that was just like <clears throat> into a, a rotting corpse. That sucks. Um, like Dave, just like you said, that hand is coming off eventually. <laughs> um, water is not gonna disinfect that, not to mention literally everything else that him and that hand go through um in the next <laughs> couple hours. So, like, totally. I, I think that that's a, a good point. You're not allowed to sit with that for long enough. So, yeah, I, I think that this is interesting. And I, I like when you have the same story told time and time again, but each time it's told, the the perspective changes or the way they're trying to tell it changes. I think that's really the only way that you can continue to tell these stories. And they're not, like, trite and... Um, overkill of something we've already talked at length about, you know? Is there anything else folks wanted to say about this particular, like the cinematography, which forgive me, I, I, I didn't even mention like who any of this like this movie was made by it was made by Sam Mendes. Um, the cinematographer was Roger Deakins. Deakins. Uh, when I was like looking all of this up on wikipedia today i i'm so sorry to say but roger deacon's picture makes him look like an oompa loompa and i he is <laughs> such a cutie don't talk shit about no, i don't want to i don't want to how does hey, it look this up. please look at it he's a silver fox no oh, it, it does it does <laughs> wait let me <laughs> Apologies. Oh, you're totally, right. oh yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> you're totally right. Oh, the haircut. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. You're totally right. Oh, Raji. Wikipedia did him dirty. That it's <laughs> justice for Roger. That's, that's really I mean, he, he's partially responsible for that hair. <laughs> Nobody forced that hair on him. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, you know, a, 
holding people accountable for their actions and the, their decisions. <laughs> um, but also like, oof, woof. Um, so anything more folks wanted to say about Roger Deakins or um, anything else about the cinematography? It's hard because there's so much amazingness uh, in the way things are lit, the production design, the way the camera like moves around and how it's all plotted out. I mean, you could have a whole hour discussion. Um, and, and then some, I think, about a lot of the strengths of how this movie looks. I think particularly the nighttime scene um, when he's running through the bombed out village. Um, I mean, that's just like really breathtaking and harrowing. And I think for me, that's one of the strongest elements of the one shot is as you're just following Schofield as he's just barely scraping by and surviving, uh, especially the uh, 1917 is a really good job of like framing and depth of field. And so that one scene where this guy comes running out of the smoke and you don't know if he's a friend or foe until he gets closer and starts shooting at Schofield. And then in this, I think there's a lot of great depth play of, especially later on, as he's strangling the one German soldier and the guy's like the drunk guy at the fire is like behind him and comes stumbling over. And it feels for me like a little like a horror movie where you're kind of like, what's coming out of the corner? Like where it, like you can see so much and your brain is taking in so much of the landscape, of the scenery, of the sets that you're kind of like, what's going to pop out of the corner? And time and time again, we're shown how dangerous this is. They're in a war. They're in a spot where one person can stab you, can shoot you, and it's over. That's it. There are no, you know, heroic moments can have pretty big costs to them. Um, nobody is safe. And so I think that, like, that kind of idea paired with how it's shot, I think just really is keeps you and i think that adds the anxiety and the tension the way that it's shot and the way that things are framed that moment at the barn farm when they see they're seeing the aerial fight or the plane fighting and then they see the plane get shot and then go down over the hill and then they're still watching it and it zooms on fire right up to them that moment i was like what that was pretty wild that's some great stuff. Although one thing that does stand out to me, and this happens a couple times in the movie, this mission is supposed to be like an eight hour journey on foot, I believe. And there's, it, it does feel like because he blacks out, I mean, it does, it, the way it manipulates time within a one shot is strange. Like that he blacks out and that affords us the additional time is a smart decision. But the rest of the time, it makes the distance seem really strange because though in World War I, it was really a matter of like kilometers like sending millions to die over like, you know, an indefensible like portion of land that would be later ceded to the enemy anyway. Um, the uselessness of it all. But it's interesting the way it plays out in this movie, specifically in that barn scene when, you know, um, after uh, Blake is stabbed uh, by this, this German pilot who is, uh, they rescue from uh, this down plane after this dog fight. And it's, it's one of those really great moments where again, the camera finally rests and we just get a scene. <laughs> Uh, is really great. And also just like, I guess it must have been CG, the way they made him progressively paler as he's bleeding out is shocking. I don't know that I've ever seen that done as well in a movie before, especially in a one shot. But the one thing that's strange is like all this happens, you know, it's it's enough time for him to die in his arms, enough time for him to reckon with it. And then he walks like 50 more feet past the house and there's this stranded platoon that's apparently i guess been there the whole time or just showed up but they're like right there like i, I think that's where the format starts to to strangle the story a little bit or how believable it is yeah because he totally would have heard them roll up like six trucks and a bunch of guys yelling at each other 
but then right is the is it supposed to suggest that maybe an hour had passed in between the guy dying and then walking through that building and then suddenly all the yeah that moment kind of was like wait <laughs> it, and that felt like a theater scene change in like a really rough way <laughs> I well, I was just gonna say, I do think when they're walking through that building, I, I think that is meant to signify that like time has passed because it's ridiculous to think that, that like they didn't notice all of these people approaching in in that like dogfight in that time. Like, yeah, like there's a convoy I, of guys like, like, oh shit, that plane's gonna crash! Look out, you're right <laughs> over there. <laughs> yeah, I, I like personally like that's how what i thought i don't know if i thought that the first time i saw it the second time it, it felt a little bit clearer but yeah i think that like that is a good point of being like what actually are you trying to say and there is some criticism around like some of the distance not being as far away as the movie makes it out to be it, it, things being closer or like why exactly would they be this far away like historically and like from a military perspective makes no fucking sense so like complete like that is totally true and um some of the notes that i saw is that like yes this was based on the stories of sam mendez's uh grandfather but like everything is pretty much fictitious except for like the the major yes they did retreat to the hindenburg line um yes it was a part of this larger operation but everything else, <laughs> no. Even, even yeah, so even big. actually the intent of that operation, which we'll get to. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like, um, to your, sorry, just to go off something you were saying, uh, Sam, about like just watching a movie and not really thinking like fully, like, like diving into like different angles and shots. I feel like that's how I feel when I watch a war film because I know nothing about like war history. <laughs> For me watching this movie, I was like, oh man this is wild. Can I like, basically I, if you had said all of this was historically accurate, I would have believed it. <laughs> so for me, part of the fun of watching it was like watching uh, how troops were spaced out, the sort of like dynamics of like first waves and second waves and all of this stuff that I find terrifying. It also took me back to repeated childhood nightmares that I had oh. actually about trench warfare and colonial warfare and i what? used to have this recurring nightmare i'm not kidding i'm not kidding what i used to have this recurring dream that i was part of like a battalion or line that was supposed to be marching forward and that in this dream i would the only thing i would think to do would be to dig a hole as quick as i could and then like cover myself in dirt <laughs> and i think <laughs> what Truly, this was like a part of my childhood and or I'd be like looking for places to like hide under people. I think it was just me confronting like my fear of the forward momentum of time or something. <laughs> Anyhow, all of that is to say <laughs> that I was quite enjoying like seeing sort of the spatial dynamics of like where different troops were and like how they were positioned, even though now I understand that like most of it's all bullshit and made up. But it was enjoyable for me to watch. <laughs> Christine, first of all, love you dearly. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. Um, uh, you know, 
I too, once I learned about trench warfare, I became a little bit of a menace and I think I brought it up as much as I possibly could. So like, I, I, I definitely get that, but also, you know, you bring up a good point of things that are priorities to us and that like, we'll be assholes about because I stopped watching house of cards in like the first couple episodes of the first season because they got like a really significant like like a big detail wrong that didn't even matter it was like a throwaway line but they got a year wrong on when some legislation was passed and i was like fuck it that's it i can't watch the show anymore so you know to each their own what matters to you matters and it's all good well that'll be interesting too when we get to the historical accuracy of this movie (laughs) (laughs) yeah which is so let's talk about it right so if you research this movie even just a little bit one of the big things that'll come up is like the continuous shot and then the historical inaccuracies and so for me what stood out is not just like where troops were and distance, but also who was serving where so you know this is a, a a big particular World War One, we've been hit over the head with details about this war a lot. I took a whole class on this in college, very interested in it. Um, you know who's serving where. And um, there are people that are shown in this cast. This is a, a somewhat more of a, a diverse cast, still very white, a little bit more diverse. And normally, you know, when you see like an all-white cast in a period piece, people say stop using historical accuracy as like a way to excuse like racism and and keeping Hollywood white. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is one of those moments where people were like, you know, however, there were like black British soldiers, but they weren't there. So like, let's call out the fact that that doesn't make sense, which is just fucking hysterical as an argument. And I, and I love that all, all, People are mad for every reason as they should be. And so I, I know that there's more historical inaccuracies and, and, and thoughts about this. So I'd love to hear other folks' thoughts. Like, does it take away from the movie? Did it leave you with more questions? How do you feel? I mean, on that front also, um, yeah, there, there are Sikh soldiers under the British uh, command that uh, would not have been on the Western Front as well. So I think, yeah, normally, like, I, I'm very much for, um, you know, a more more inclusive casting, uh, al- almost to the degree that accuracy be damned. But this one also makes a lot of other mistakes. I, I kind of have a laundry list here. And I'm by no means like a like a war historian or or like someone that is all that interested in, in that kind of research. I, I mean, I find it fascinating, but I'm not like a research hound on this front. But within 15 minutes of Googling... I found uh, all these different problems, which I think is illustrative of this movie's attitude. Um, so just to go off the top here, uh, an urgent communications mission carried out by only two men across no man's land is patently ridiculous. They would have sent at least a platoon or perhaps more accurately used flares or carrier pigeons to carry those messages if phone lines were down. The military decorum when addressing superiors in interior spaces like not removing your helmet this is pretty nitpicky but you know that's the thing the way they carry their rifles uh they're affected by an underground this is more practical one they're affected by an underground explosion at one point within a a tripwire that's within one of the german bunkers and ultimately you know because of compression those are way more serious than open air explosions so they would have been disoriented if not at least probably permanently deafened by that experience 
Um, the Hindenburg line, which we talked about before, was uh, a line that the Germans retreated to, but it was a regrouping tactic rather than a trap for the British. Um, and it actually, interestingly enough, this movie takes place on April 6th, uh, 1917, which was the day that the United States entered the war, which was part of why the depleted German lines retreated to the Hindenburg line to regroup, not to set a trap for the British. There are uh, the proximity of German artillery to German trenches, uh, a giant waterfall that he falls down in northern France. German soldiers uh, do not stop stop to take aim and are unable to shoot Schofield at a distance of about five meters while he's running in a straight line. Uh, the British trenches at the end offer no defilade or cover from opposing artillery. And this is the, probably the most crucial one because this one really caught my attention, even without doing research, because just because I have a cursory knowledge of how World War II was fought, is that at the end, they're sending whole infantry battalions toward an enemy line that they, even though they assume it to be retreating, which they would never, ever do in World War I without a preemptive artillery barrage. That's how the entirety of that war was fought. And like it, it feels to me like this movie was so swept up in presenting this the one shot spectacle or gimmick, uh, depending on how you want to frame that, that it took for granted historical details. Which, if you're going to make a war movie, I think is pretty important. And it's not the sort of thing that I would normally care that much about, but I think it's it's pretty pronounced the neglect that they did, or the the neglect of the, like the homework and the legwork of actually framing this properly, uh, I think is kind of a detriment to the movie. So Sam, you mentioned something in the chat about this being indicative of stories that the grandfather is passing on to his family. And I think that as you've highlighted all of these inaccuracies, Dave, that I would not have had it meant much frame of reference to like, to verify or no, except for the waterfall Only in France. Only minutes of Googling, so why didn't they The waterfall in France was definitely like, what the fuck is this? But I think if the movie, I what a really fascinating angle would have been is to actually really reinforce kind of the storytelling aspect of it and actually mm. creating sort of this unreliable narrator perspective. Like if it's yeah. really going to push one shot, then it could, it could have really done some interesting things with, like what happens when you tell a war, particularly a war story from one or two characters' perspectives? There's so much there. There's It's rich with possibility of like understanding war narrative, propaganda, people, like individuals' relationship with the situation they're in and storytelling and how things get misremembered or, or how memory sort of shapes and changes the way we understand a particular type of story. Especially so that under duress, been, yeah, in this circumstance. Under, yeah. Right, exactly. And like, and it, it sort of shapes and complicates sort of the hero narrative. Uh, yeah, I think, Sam, now that you've brought this up, there were, there's sort of a missed opportunity to have created a really interesting larger framework for this story that I think, yeah, could have maybe not excused the historic inaccuracy, but at least like maybe made it feel a little bit more intentional, but maybe a cover for them not have to, having done their <laughs> research. Either way, if Dave was able to find all of that out in 15 minutes, um, something should have been done. Someone should have... That's how I feel about House of Cards. Someone somewhere had to have been like, 
let me just real quick double check. And no one did. No one did. Which is also part of my gripe, too. It's like, you know, if, if these like historical omissions or inaccuracies or anachronisms served a purpose within telling the story, Christine, like you're illustrating, telling the story that you're trying to tell, then it could be forgivable. But this is on its face a pretty straightforward story. And the the narrative and I I would argue characters are a bit paper thin to begin with. So those omissions don't really serve anything other than allowing you an opportunity to point them out. Yeah. I mean, I think that this movie is, it works really well and it's phenomenal when you think, Hey, this is just a couple hours that we're seeing and don't take it any further than that. Don't think about it any more than that. Don't want to know more about these people. Don't ask for more about these people. And then like when it comes to what's actually going on, don't think about it. Um, (laughs) But yeah, when you do start, (laughs) perhaps um, a little bit more could have been done. Right. And like Christine, when you were saying, Oh, the unreliable narrator, I think that could have worked if they had just added maybe like five minutes of context around of that, like at the very beginning, because then you get like the the bit at the end that's like, this is dedicated to all of that. And I was like, oh, so that's what they're doing. Like, to put that at the front and then kind of establish and then it, fine, sort of forgiven. You have an easy opportunity to explain that this is imperfect because it's someone's memory, but then you don't explain that and then make an imperfect movie in that regard. (laughs) 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 Right. So historical inaccuracies can sort of like lead me to think about the, the genre of period pieces, but specifically um, war movies Uh, For some reason, I love war movies. I love them, uh, movies. I love television shows. I love reading books. I like reading about World War I, World War II. Um, But you know, like, (laughs) it's become like a little problematic these days, right? Um, Who like really is into that history and, and for what reasons. And so... You know, the way, the, the way that I want to kind of cap this conversation off about 1917 is these, these movies that continue to come out about the various world wars, are they, have they always been propaganda or have they become propaganda even more now than they've ever been before? Or does it matter? Who cares? This one's an interesting one for me because I don't think this movie has for a World War One movie has much to say about World War One, uh, trench warfare or war in general. I think it, it does. It does at, at the end. The moment with Benedict Benedict Cumberbatch, everybody has this has this really cool moment where like it seems like it's addressing through these two characters through Schofield and uh, this commanding officer at the Devons who he's tasked with delivering this message of this urgent message of like, we have to stop this assault or we're walking into a trap. Uh, We get Cumberbatch as the uh, commanding officer, basically expressing like, look, this is a war of attrition. It's last man standing sort of illuminating within just a moment, this really interesting commentary on how that war in particular, as well as arguably every war ever fought uh, is is ultimately uh, at the cost of, you know, dozens of people who were sent to dozens, if not millions, in this case, of people who are sent to grisly deaths uh, at the behest of valor hungry maniacs to a degree. But then within the same shot, because it's 
it's all one shot. Um, Schofield wanders away from this conversation after uh, disappointed with his uh, his the, the lack of uh, the, the lack of an opportunity to to wage war and continue fighting. Benedict Cumberbatch's character, the commanding officer, tells him to literally tells him to fuck off, which I had a good hearty laugh at. But then he walks just a little bit further toward the end of the bunker, and we see this older officer who basically tells him right then, in contrast to everything we've just heard as a critique, hey, listen, soldier, you did a good job. So it it feels like it almost it walks up to the point of saying something that is a critique or like a, 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 an observation of how wars are fought and the, and the, the motivations behind them but then immediately softens and diffuses it and doesn't have the courage to see that criticism through. And then that way, I feel like this movie kind of really doesn't say anything too much about war or warfare as a, as a statement. It, it kind of feels again, like it is more spectacle than it is commentary or even necessarily a war film, which I find interesting in the sense that like, yeah, it's just, it's a strange, it's a strange track to take when getting so close to saying something and then walking it back. And it's an interesting thing that Mendez said in regard to this being an adaptation of his grandfather's memories of the war is that he wanted it to be emotional, but not sentimental. I think this movie is a bit sentimental. I think it, it it's a little valor heavy. It is a little bit about duty and a little light on the horror or the uselessness of war, which I find disappointing, especially because it gets so close to illuminating that, but then tiptoes backward. It's interesting you bring all those points up because I think that relates to maybe my one of my biggest critiques of the movie is the lack of like a really strong emotional through line where we have there's you know the state it's a war movie the stakes are incredibly high if you do not go these eight hours you know run to this location thousands of people will die very good stakes to mm-hmm. like base the plot of a movie around but I think the idea of you know I think of saving saving Private Ryan of like a movie that has really great emotional stakes as well characters you really connect with uh, like a lot of great war movies do. And I just feel like maybe because of the artifice of the one shot I don't know the the payoff at the end of telling you play Tom in the Game of Thrones the other um, <laughs> partner with Schofield um, Blake I don't know Blake I just felt like. I think part of the one shot, like we just, we only have X amount of minutes really with Blake. And I don't know. I just feel like the, I, I, Dave, those points that you brought, I think just resonated. Like for me, there wasn't, I didn't really care a whole lot about these characters of the trials and the tribulations that they were going through, which I think could tie into this idea of like, whatever they're going to say about war, I feel like it didn't quite have the character depth to like flesh out whatever kind of theme was going on about whatever, you know, probably not novel statement about war that they were maybe thinking about trying to make. I think that for me, what I was seeing was like a narrative. I would say this movie is quite sentimental to a, to a fault. Uh, but what I would say is that I think it does a good job of highlighting survival and sort of primal survival as like an L, a big element in like war but Hmm. particularly in a war like world war one and it was actually something i had been thinking about when i was watching dunkirk world war ii is i thought that movie does a good job of like highlighting chance and moments where 
anything could like death could result in either sort of this like valor filled battle or death could result in falling off a board while you're trying to cross a body of water. And so I was thinking about that in Dunkirk. And I was also thinking about those elements in 1917. You, you're, you have these two characters that begin with this epic journey that they're supposed to do in this epic mission. But like at each point, there are so many things that could go wrong, whether it's getting shot at, whether it's just tripping and like cutting your hand on a piece of barbed wire. I think maybe it could have taken that if if that was sort of the goal of like getting it personal and like moving outside of the sort of like heroic uh, sort of themes and more just focusing on like, how does a body move through space in this highly specific and also horrific situation where it's like every movement of your physical body could result in sudden death. Um, and maybe it does, it does, I don't think it pushes it that far, but I think those were kinds of the things I was seeing, uh, played out uh, as far as an element of war, uh, depicted. Yeah. And I think like when it comes to sentiment too, I, I think it does, the mission changes halfway through, right? It goes from telling them to call this the fuck off to not. To, to getting the message to Blake's brother, right? To 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 find mm. Blake's brother mm. to make sure that he doesn't die too. And so when we hear, well, Blake was probably with his men and, and they were part of the first thing. And you just like see Schofield's face like, oh, fuck. You know, like, are you, fu- this was for nothing? That's kind of what it feels like, right? Which is sort of the the sort of opposite of when you try when you you look at war from like the macro perspective of like this was one dude, um, and a lot of other people died because you passed out or whatever, whatever. So it's interesting because you can sort of interpret it in a lot of different ways. But Dave, when you were talking about how it almost says something and then stops. Hottie Mark Strong is in it for a hot second, right? And he talks about like, oh, so you're bringing this to to Mackenzie, to Carl Mackenzie. Make sure there are other people in the room when you tell him this, because if there's not, he'll just go for it anyway. So like not trusting colonels, like some people just want war. Some people just want action. And then they they sort of didn't do anything with that either. So I hear that. Although that's a great, that's a really great note. I, I really hadn't digested it in that way. The 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 personalization of Schofield's mission when when Blake dies, not only you know saving his brother along with sixteen hundred other soldiers, but not only that, but delivering the message of I was there when your brother died, and I was I was there in those moments. Yeah, it's. That's a, that's a, you know, that's actually a character depth through line that uh, maybe I had uh, taken for granted. So it's actually, yeah, it's a good observation. And what's it? One of the, like the last lines of the movie is like, can I, can I mail your mom and tell mm-hmm. her that I was with him when he died? So yeah, like, like there is some sentiment there too, but anyway, anyway. Yeah, um, that, that's an angle I didn't really think about. Either, yeah. Mm. Zooming in. So that, that's a good, yeah, I, I didn't quite think about it that way. Well, I guess much like people, movies contain multiple truths. 
<laughs> and um, multiple lies in this case. Multiple lies. <laughs> or at I, least inaccuracies. I thought in the death scene, that, and I was like, this would be dark, but I think really effective. I, I thought in the death scene of, the, of Blake, I thought he was going to have Schofield change the circumstances of his death. Or like when he was like, oh, are they shelling? Or like, are those or what's the embers? Are they shelling us? I thought there was going to be a moment where Schofield like narrates back to Blake, the circumstances of his death being like, yeah, we're right in the middle of battle. Mm. Basically you, you died fighting in this battle. And I thought that was going to be like a really kind of like interesting kind of dark turn of like, feeding back sort of this narrow, this narrative of heroism to a character that died because he was trying to be a human providing another human with water, but made a pretty stupid mistake as a soldier. And so I was like, Oh, this would be interesting if like the circumstances of his death were changed to sort of feed this narrative, but it didn't go that route. But I was like, that could have been like an interesting uh, narrative that also connects to kind of how this story reinforces more sort of like, like the hero's journey sort of in a way that feels a little one dimensional. I feel like that would have been very poetic, but also very, uh, jingoistic at the same time. Like I do, I, part of I do like that. As and, and not a criticism of that counter narrative, uh, just like you know, just a thought. But uh, I, I do like the simplicity of positive jingoism. I think it would be like talking about like how people feed in the snare. Like I, I would have seen it as a critique of like sort of like hero narratives, and that would have been like kind of fucked up. Uh, that would have been fucked up. Uh, but that, I guess that's what I do like about it is, is at that moment is that it is very matter of fact. I mean, Skull, um, Blake is bleeding out and is becoming delirious because you know there's not enough blood going to his brain and he's he's asking like how was i hit um you know am i dying and then there's this long yeah. pause and Schofield just honestly tells him yeah i think you are Ugh, which is, is actually really powerful I, I do really appreciate that little moment and i love that the way that that moment is set up i know we're getting kind of off track from the original thread of this question but i really wanted to talk about in a, in a movie that doesn't have a lot of close zoomed in face shots, like, you know, a shot, B shot kind of traditional filming techniques. Um, the moment of when Blake is left alone with a German pilot because Schofield goes to get water from the well. We just see the back of Schofield's head, maybe hear a little sound behind. Then we see Schofield turn in his face as he sees, you know, we see his reaction to Blake getting stabbed before we see Blake. You know the you know the, the aftershock of him getting stabbed, and I thought that was a really excellent positioning and use of the camera to give us a really good, you know, seeing a character react to something, which is you know up close, personal, a unique moment in this movie. Not there aren't not a whole lot of those moments. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> the power of war movies, man. Uh, now, Christine, I, I I know you had some Google reviews for us that you wanted to share. So Thomas wrote this Google review uh, that I, I found that I just thought was, I kind of just, Thomas had some really strong opinions about this movie. So Thomas writes, too many flaws. Wife and I noticed right away. 
must have been a millennial's interpretation of World War One. Production <laughs> seemed <laughs> production seemed rushed. Could have used a rewrite. We're from Michigan, and you cannot free a stuck vehicle by spinning the wheels. Certainly not in mud or snow. Oh my that, god. That and it seemed to lurch forward after the soldiers pushing it relaxed. Who wrote this? Some clueless city person? Also, the cow looked far too healthy and contented and contented. Uh, <laughs> and not dead to be shown on a totally blown out farm and fresh milk. Two question marks. Give me a break. Of course, you could argue some German shoulder just milked it. Uh, and had put down the bucket when the Brits showed up. But that cow would have been butchered up for food, not munching out in the pasture close to the house. In the cellar of the church, why weren't the women and why wasn't the woman and child dirtier and in rags? The baby girl looked like it was dressed in a modern onesie. I thought it would be wearing at least a tattered and dirty white dress with lace, like a christening gown, perhaps. I think the kid belonged to someone on the set that day, and it was convenient for the scene. <laughs> I know there's more, but this is insane. (laughs) (laughs) This is this is like the best, like the the best of Letterbox. I know it's not Letterbox, but it just reminds me of that Twitter. The milk thing, I also (laughs) had questions about. Continue. (laughs) There were flies all over the dead horse when they first crawled out of the trench, but none over the dozens of human corpses they encountered. Why? I should think they'd be especially prevalent on the bodies he climbed over as he got out of the river. And why didn't he duck down and crawl out of that river more slowly and carefully? He wasn't really sure where he was. Oh, well, it's just a movie. But if you're going to tell a story and seriously depict it, then you'd better do it right. Now I wish I hadn't paid for it. Or do I have to rewrite the whole bloody thing? <laughs> so that's Thomas's Google review. This is Thomas from Michigan oh. dropping a bloody in an American vernacular. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. You know, in the milk bucket's defense, Schofield is also very surprised <laughs> that it's still fresh. Also, not for nothing, uh, putting uh, milk in your canteen at war is a horrible idea because they're hard to clean and that will sour pretty fast. Yeah, I, I really focused a lot on the milk. Uh, and then I know, you know, it plays a part with the baby, but I was like, I, I can't, I can't move past that. So I, <laughs> I hear Thomas in that way. <laughs> Oh my god, I hope Thomas's farm is doing all right. Sounds like he's got it pretty nailed down. His cows, <laughs> yeah. his cows are appropriately contented. <laughs> also, also, I want to see I want to see Thomas's rewrite. <laughs> like is there a way that we can like find if Thomas has written any other reviews of movies because like now I'm obsessed with this man and I need to know his thoughts on everything else. I'm sure he has Many opinions. On many. <laughs> ah, hell yeah. It's going to be hey, like Casablanca, pretty good movie. Not enough farm. <laughs> <laughs> what is his thoughts on Babe? I'd pay. Oh my boy. <laughs> I, I also love the idea that like Sam Mendes, one of the most accomplished directors in like working in you know cinema right now, it's like, what is this a millennials take on? And it's actually a retelling of an account from a World War One soldier. (laughs) Yeah, Roger Deakin, Sam Mendes, go fuck yourselves. Christine, did you want to share more? No, that was Thomas's review. Okay, Thomas said it all. New segment. What what more is there to say? (laughs) You're right. 
Um, we build a theme around all of Thomas's reviews. Wow. Sounds like a project. Jeez. Wow. What a what a way to put like an end to roommate revenge, huh? <laughs> Thank you, Thomas. Thank you, Christine, for bringing Thomas to us. Thank you, Heather and Kara, for taking time. Yes, a round of applause for taking time out of your days to <laughs> watch all of our movies and to to think about what our uh, movie tastes say about us as people. Um, one final question I have for the group is, how do you think Heather and Kara did with the movies that they picked for you? Do you think that they understand your film choices and your interests or or not? I uh, I think uh, as they as they pretty aptly pointed out, I tend to take movies very seriously and was assigned a movie that intentionally doesn't take itself very seriously. Uh, so, uh, I appreciate that contrast at the very least. <laughs> I thought they did a great job of planning a theme. If this feels like an alternate universe theme that we would do about something, I don't know, like Encino Man, I never saw it, but there's a different, I think I said this in the episode, um, but there's a universe where Connor would have loved this movie growing up. So I, I think that was, um, a spot on pick and it was a fun one to kind of do a very silly movie to do a very deep dive on. So I appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I don't, I wouldn't say Austin Land is my fave movie, but I will say that it uh, tees up a movie that's coming down the pike as far as period pieces go. Uh, so it like, yeah, was, I mean, they are spot on in that I love a good period piece. And I will say the movie that I've picked for our next theme is a movie I'll probably save it for that episode for the full explanation, but it is a movie that I would want to have Carrie Russell's experience or like to be in that set (laughs) or in that taken back into that uh, particular time period. So to be continued. Well, you know, I, I, I think that they did a good job. There's a little bit of understanding the movie tastes. And then also like a little bit of revenge too. So I don't know. I had a lot of fun. I hope y'all listeners, I hope you enjoyed this. And if you ever want to see us do something like this again, maybe uh, listeners pick the movies, maybe something like that. Uh, Who knows? Who's to say? But regardless, thanks for listening. Uh, Please follow us on our socials, Instagram at ButterWithThat butter with that podcast at gmail.com we're on facebook i don't know about us being on twitter much longer with all of the fucking <laughs> elon musk bullshit going on who's to say but regardless start paying 20 dollars for that verified check hey if we can become verified i think that's worth it to put it into the uh, butter with that budget <laughs> but we have to be verified butter with that one like i i will not <laughs> now take regular butter with that <laughs> Uh, anyway folks thanks for listening and have a good whatever this has been a movie john podcast